0: Hello and welcome to Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Chris Slowly. Now Chris, today we have, I mean look, all our guests are special, I should say that. But today we have something of a special guest, a big name, certainly. Bill Gross. Yeah, definitely.
1: Well, I've just talked over the big name, but yeah, Bill Gross, former PIMCO founder. I suppose he's always going to be the PIMCO founder, but no longer of PIMCO. A big, big name, still a big name in terms of his presence, his opinions, he's still very visible in the market he's just published his own book he's just had a book published about him so yeah if you're at that level i think you'll you probably are on the special guest list
0: yeah i think so i think so and, and you're right he's he's very much in the in the news right now in the news cycle there's a there's a book by um uh, an npr journalist mary childs uh about about him and how he built Pimco. you know sort of almost sort of built built of bond market to some degree uh, and then obviously his downfall and he published his own memoir. I think it's related, right? That he that he put it out around a similar time.
1: The timing, I mean, the timing is interesting. Let's put it that way.
0: Uh, I'd never interviewed him before. You have interviewed him a few times now, Chris. Um, obviously, a certain amount about him is sort of known. He, he's out there. He's not media shy. Uh, but we learn a decent amount from him, I think, um, both in terms of mistakes and just sort of general views on things to watch out for in, in the world of asset management.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, you're going to hear it now, but you're right. In the, the times I spoken to him previously, we've been purely talking about markets, and this was a lot more personal. I thought he was very candid. He laid out the fact that he studied psychology at university, so maybe that's part of it. He's got a, bit, a lot more introspection. I also think a big factor was when I interviewed him previous times, it was very much on my literal time zone, which didn't particularly favour him, whereas this one worked on his. And I think we got mid-morning Bill rather than early morning Bill, which I think was a slightly different animal and makes for a much better podcast experience
0: yeah i'm sure i'm sure we're all a little better at 10 rather than at sort of six aren't we um but you know i thought it was really interesting like obviously really candid about uh mistakes and we've joked on the podcast before that most people's mistakes they give us something that came early in their career rather than late but like this isn't too much of a spoiler but 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 obviously uh his focus of, of things that perhaps didn't go right for him came post pimco rather rather than sort of on the run-up to what was obviously a very successful time there. I thought he was really candid about that. Um, I thought he was also very open about kind of um, the culture of star managers, the role of kind of ego and kind of, um, yeah, just sort of how those things play into decisions made.
1: Something that also stands out, I think, and people, I mean, it's an obvious thing to do, but there's a bit of name-dropping, there's the obligatory Kathy Wood reference. There's also a name check for Warren Buffett and a surprising story surrounding another larger than life character, Donald Trump. So a lot to pack
0: in. Yeah, do listen out for, for the Trump Trump anecdote. That That is top content. You're not getting that on these other podcasts with Gross, just FYI. Uh, but look, without further ado, here is our interview with Bill Gross.
1: So Bill Gross, thank you for joining us. You're welcome to... The- the title of the podcast, as we've discussed, is "Mistakes Were Made." So let's start with the biggest, <laughs> biggest topic first. What's the biggest investment mistake you made? What did you learn from it?
2: Well, it was a long career, so um, trying to figure out the best one or the worst one, <laughs> I, I guess, is difficult. But um, I, I guess, in terms of a career, maybe you want to talk about investing. I'll do that. Um, in terms of a career, I, I when I left Pemco, when Pemco left me. Um, I should have gone straight to my office like I'm doing now and um, manage my own portfolio. I don't know why I had to go to Janus other than to you know try and beat Pimco at their own game, uh, you know, through unconstrained funds, which uh, was a mistake as well. But um, I just should have at 72. I should have called called it quits in terms of uh, public persona and just manage money on my own. So that was one.
0: what was what was behind I mean, I'm sorry, I know you've talked about this so many times and a lot at the moment with you know various books and things that but what I suppose what was why why looking back, why do you think you made that decision?
2: Well, I wanted to show Pimco that they were wrong in terms of firing me. And so I called up Dick Wilder Janice, he was in Denver. Um, you know, it was a quick um, um meeting uh I didn't want to be fired that uh, Friday afternoon on September 14th. And so I left in the morning, um, before they had a chance to fire me. And, uh, I thought that Janice, um, who had promised, and it, and it was true. They, they had, uh, several million dollars and two unconstrained funds and it, it built rather rapidly. Uh, you know, once I joined and, uh, people like George Soros and so on, uh, you know, came in, but, uh, you know, I, they simply wanted to put my numbers against their numbers and say, uh, you know, you effed up and uh, didn't work out that way, uh, d- which obviously was a mistake. But, uh, you know, I'm glad I'm doing what I'm doing now. It's much easier. And all I have to do is uh, do interviews over Zoom like this.
0: Hey, I'm the golf in the afternoon, which isn't too shabby. Um, what, what was the mistake? Was it then in? In executing once you moved over there like you know it, it, the the mandate was wrong the setup was wrong or was it just the decision just you shouldn't have even sort of uh you know c- could you have made it right c- could things have gone differently well i
2: could have uh you know in the old blackjack days uh when i was a early professional blackjack player i learned uh, the Kelly rule, which basically said you couldn't bet more than two percent of your stake, um, you know, to forestall a uh, run of bad luck, uh, it was good training for Pimco uh, in terms of portfolio diversification. At Janus, I think I <clears throat> I wanted to gun it, uh, you know, pretty quickly to, out of the chute, and and so the positions were rather large. It was an unconstrained fund, but uh, that's not how I managed uh, total return money. at And so I I think the position size and obviously uh, if the positions were correct, uh, would have been a a wonderful uh, total return type of portfolio, but it wasn't. And uh, the big mistake, I guess, was a continuation of the the German Bund and the U.S. Treasury spread at the time um, and almost uh, identical to today, but not quite. you know the ten-year German uh, bond was trading at a negative 240 basis points to Treasuries. I'm not sure the exact levels during the two or three years I was at Janus, but um, you know, it seemed like a pretty widespread to me. It seemed like the the bonds would have to go up in yield and the Treasuries would have to go down because these were two, you know, rather major economies. Uh, the ECB effectively with Germany and um, you know the Fed with the U.S. and so uh, I figured at some point the economies would, you know, close up. Uh, inflation would close up. The ECB and the Fed would come uh, not together but would come, um, you know, closer together. And and so a a short on um, German ten-year bonds um, applied through the futures market and a, a long on Treasuries was was bound to make money. It didn't.
1: You called that the short of the lifetime at one point in, in April 2015. And I mean, we will move on from mistakes. We will look at other things as well. But in terms of big calls, you've made a lot of big calls during your career. And I know it's a long career. There's the selling off of all the treasuries from the PIMCO Total Return Fund. There's calling the German bunds short of a lifetime. Is that the challenge, though, of if you're going to make serious money, you have to make big calls like that and they won't always come off?
2: Well, I didn't have to. I, I mean, uh, my career was based to some extent on um, PR and uh, the press. Uh, the press didn't always treat me well, but they they did treat me <laughs> in terms of, uh, you know, putting out my comments. And, and for the most part, as you know, over 30 or 40 years, most of those calls were pretty good. Um, so I, I said it was a trade of a lifetime. Yeah, it was a it seemed like a good trade. It has been a good trade in the last uh Year or so, but uh, like we know in uh, lots of trades historically, um, sometimes you can go bankrupt. And I, I didn't go bankrupt, but sometimes you can go bankrupt before the trade uh, basically pans out. And it took a long, long time uh, for this trade to pan out.
0: And Chris touched on it there. You know, obviously, look, you've had a, a hugely long career and, you know, very successful career and yet, yeah, well, okay, the point of this podcast is to talk about mistakes, but, but I suppose also perhaps people have spoken to you more recently about sort of the, the latter end of your career and your time at Janus and things. Uh, and so that sort of means again, they, they look at that rather than, I guess, sort of, sort of, sort of what came before. Um, do you think that, uh, I suppose, the perception of you has been changed or, or coloured a little bit by, by the back end of that, uh, of your career? and Does, does that bother you? That, that people perhaps at the moment at least focus on that more than you know the, the 30 plus years <laughs> you had building up Pimco,
2: well, of course. I, I mean, uh, when Willie Mays spent his last year uh, with the Giants, um, you know, obviously he wasn't a home run hitter and he wasn't uh, you know, hitting for average, but um, I think everyone remembers Willie Mays, the baseball player, as one of the greatest ever. Um, but the, the last year or two in sports and the last year or two, I guess, uh, in any career, um, you know, look at Jack Welch at, uh, at GE, a wonderful career, but he made some mistakes, big mistakes at the end. And, and so, um, Yeah, I think it's I think it's a little unfair at at Janus. by the way, just to defend myself, I made money uh, above the line, didn't lose money, Um, just relative to the averages, um, you know, basically, the numbers sucked. So, uh, you know, too bad.
1: No, I was going to say, because during your career, Bill, you've been on both sides of it because you've been on the trading side, but you've also on the business side. I mean, this touched on Alex's point. You founded a company that became hugely successful and you had to surround yourself. I know you've talked a lot about the investment committee at PIMCO. Can we talk about sort of qualities? What makes a good bond manager? If we're talking about mistakes they make, what are good things that they do? And what sort of things do you look for in a bond manager, not just yourself, but the people you'd want to work with?
2: Well, um... I think back in the day, it's a little bit different now. Um, but back in the day, a good bond manager had to be a good mathematician, had to be, uh, I put it this way, one third mathematician, one third economist, uh, one third horse trader. And that certainly worked for me. And, and it wasn't exactly the the style at PIMCO, so to speak. Um, you know, they weren't all mathematicians and they weren't all Horse traders, but for me, uh, I think there's are three good qualities. If you can combine them, uh, you know, it makes for some good numbers over time.
1: You what makes I... a bond king? What makes somebody stand out above that crowd?
2: Well, a good uh, a good article in Fortune magazine in 1999, <laughs> I guess. Uh, <laughs> You know, I press
0: basically it's not a snappy <laughs> headline
2: i didn't suggest it but uh, i went with it and i i think um you know at, at pimco building a business and, and i guess building a business anywhere um you know you need publicity you you can starve with good numbers unless people know about it uh there was an old lady i wrote it in my book um a neighbor of mine i was cutting the grass back in uh the early 80s and I'd just been divorced and she said Bill how's how are things going um are you meeting new people and I said ah it's not working for me and she said well you know Bill uh if you want to get laid you gotta say hello and so, so that didn't <laughs> that didn't work that well in bars uh for me, But it, it uh, you know, I, I said maybe this works in business. Business, you got to say hello in order to uh, build a successful business franchise. And so I started writing investment outlooks, etc., etc., etc. You know, did a lot of press, and ultimately the press uh, nicknamed me the, the Bond King, and it stuck. And I wasn't about to deny it because it was good press.
0: And then I suppose the I suppose the flip side of that is the press is fickle. Well, not the press, but 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 you know, fame can be fickle, right? So you know, you you, you hit headlines, and then, and then and then you're in the headlines, and then you know, if 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 other things turn against you, you're still in the headlines.
2: Yeah, and and I knew that intellectually. Um, emotionally, I wasn't prepared for it because things always basically went well. I mean, there were some negative articles about a trade or uh, about six month performance but uh, it, it mostly was always good and and so the the intellectual part of me that said hey, uh, you can't fly too close to the sun um, before the wax melts and uh, and uh, fame turns into infamy uh, but I didn't really believe it until, uh, you know the PIMCO thing and uh, the circumstances there which I, I thought were very unfair but the press you know saw a good story and they went with it.
0: Have you I read somewhere and forgive me there's a lot of pieces written about you you do, you do a lot of you know you've done a lot of interviews of you I think you quoted say you know you did, or maybe you hadn't read this recent book because you didn't you know you were sensitive cri- to criticism which I thought was I would have thought you were sort of you know kind of impervious to it because you know one, being a fund manager you know every day one is compared you know to the market or to your peers so you're kind of you're used to it and two you seem to have embraced an element of uh, fame and, and to a degree infamy so I, I was surprised to read that you were sort of w- would be sensitive to uh, the the ups and downs of coverage or criticism
2: well those things go back to our childhood right um, and uh, for me the sensitivity of uh, was a reflection of my need for um, for applause. Um, you know, I majored in psychology at Duke. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of a neurotic uh, type of need for love when you want people to write good articles. And when they write bad articles, um, you know, basically mommy and daddy are mad. And so, um, yeah, I was always very sensitive and that was too bad. Um, but uh, intellectually, I knew uh, there were dangers there, but uh, they never really came up until
1: 2014. We've talked a lot about it, in terms of key man risk has come up a lot lately. And I think there's there's never been a, a probably one of the biggest examples of that is the the role you had at PIMCO and, and how much PIMCO is associated with you and you are associated with PIMCO. And I, I realize I'm walking a slight tightrope here because I don't want to get drawn into anything that's too contentious. But. With regards to the way that you are working now as a private investor, is it much better just to be focused on, I'm doing this for me, I'm doing this for the charity, rather than thinking, what does this mean for a company's brand, so to speak?
2: Um, I don't think it's that much different. I, I mean, I'm working for my foundation and for ultimately to to increase my uh, stake for my uh, children and their trusts and so on and so on. So that's good. And at PIMCO, I I was always working and we were always working for uh, the client that was uppermost in our minds. And I know that sounds like a a soggy platitude, but it was was always true. And so um, in both cases, uh, working for something else other than for me, uh, I don't need anything. I got my plan like uh, Warren Buffett, Says and after you get your plane, you don't really need anything.
0: Yeah, I'm just, Chris, and I can relate to that very easily. We're both, uh, you know, big private jet men. Uh, Um <laughs> I wanted to pick up on something Chris spoke about there, which was key man risk. So I just, just this is actually not something we sort of particularly prep for, but the, the cult of, of the cult of the star manager. You know, you you were a star manager, and you left, and billions and billions of money, uh, billions and billions of dollars left, let it go as a result. And I feel as though, and there's been a few other big names over the years. And do, do you think that still exists now? Not necessarily just in bonds, and I'm not asking you to, to name another bond king or anything, but, but do you think that the star manager exists today as, as, as they used to?
2: Well, I don't think so. Certainly in the bond market uh, and the stock market and the equity market and real estate, um, you know, we see that, example of Kathy Wood, uh, she's up and now she's down, up back a little. Um, so it, it's possible to become a star if you do something different, if you differentiate yourself, if you have public relations and publicity. Saying, a, she,
0: she's played the press quite well as well, to be fair.
2: I, I, probably think so um so i, I guess it's possible but uh, you know on the bond side uh, the the real kings have always been central banks and they put out the rules they determine the levels um, to a considerable extent and and so um you know like i wrote in my, my book to a certain extent um there never was a, a bond king um even at PIMCO, uh, there were lots of bond kings and bond queens. Um, you know, we went with the publicity in order to to have clients want to come in and, yes, meet the team. Uh, team's the big word these days, as you know. Uh, come and meet the team, but they wanted to shake hands and get a picture with the king. And so that sold tickets. And I, I wasn't ashamed of that. But I never really thought of myself as a, a king. I knew I had good numbers. I knew PIMCO had good numbers. Um, you know, I knew uh, as uh, someone at Morningstar said that uh, you know Pimco was making more money for more people than anybody uh, ever in, in the world, and that was 20 years ago. So it's been uh, outdated by now. But um, you know, I was very, very proud of it, and so we went with uh, what sold tickets, um, and obviously the tickets ultimately had to be backed up by a, a good game and i think it was
1: i met with the ceo last week who said so much of the market is now about storytelling and it's moved to who can tell the best story and that seems to capture the imagination and this isn't taking pot shots of kathy wood i think she tells a good story or she has been telling a good story and it's just been caught on the wrong side of the way the markets are going as somebody who writes investment outlooks and has now written a book as well where does that cross the line in that sort of storytelling that narrative do you see yourself as an innate storyteller
2: oh yes um I I was first of all I thought I could have been a a, a really great guitar rock player uh, rock star um, instead of a Bond King, uh, but but I th- also thought I could be a good author and I thought my investment outlooks um, were were very personal and that attracted people uh, they wanted to find out uh, what was inside of a person that was willing to talk about himself and his uh, and his family. Um, and, and I was a good writer and i i would write these uh introductions you know and sh- coming out of the shower when uh, the brain was free and open and and then I would uh, you know sort of s- store them in the freezer uh, for the time uh when it was appropriate to use them so i i was very much into that and i i'm very uh proud of the things I wrote i i, I included 10 of them in my Book in the appendix, and uh, there's many more for people to read. But um, obviously, I was a better investment manager than an author. Um,
1: well, you had one big, big fan going back to a previous point that, that's in the book. There's, I'm not sure if Alex, if you've seen this, there's, there's a shot of Warren Buffett. Buffett's letter, yeah, wanting the compendium of them, which you've now, to an extent, done.
2: Yes, he, uh, Warren and I were uh, not close friends, but good friends um, over the years, and uh, he would always look forward to my investment outlook and uh, at, at some point you wrote back and said uh you know feel free to tell the world that uh i uh, love your investment outlooks and uh, you know uh, utilize the information that uh, is in them so that was nice um he's a nice man
0: this is this is actually a very, a very neat segue which is um investors that you you respect then obviously i'm assuming you have some respect for him or <laughs> maybe turn around and say you don't you just you just use his endorsement but uh, i'm sure you do um who else you know who else over the years have you uh whether it's you know reading their things or just looking at their their, their performance of things who are some of the investors that kind of you you have time for that, that you doff your doff your cap to well i um
2: i, I like so, so, uh, I like Jim Grant. He's not necessarily an investor. He's a writer. Uh, yeah. and, and to be fair, Jim is always a little early and uh, uh, you know, always a one-horse uh, gold standard type of guy, but he's brilliant. Uh, he knows his history. Um, his timing's a little bit off in terms of uh, being too early on things, but uh, I always look forward to his Grant uh, Investment Observer. Um, on the investment side, uh, Scott Menard from... Guggenheim, uh, I've met him just once or twice, but uh, he has a similar outlook to mine in terms of a a long-term secular outlook as opposed to trading in and out and trading in and out like Kathy Wood does. So, um, you, you know, I, I respect him. And, um, you know, through the years, um, I don't know, I, I never bought the Peter Lynch uh, shtick, I, I guess, um, I, I thought, you know his idea of buying something in the grocery store that you're familiar with um you know that was more of a shtick than anything else and i i think his number he, he quit too early i i i wanted peter lynch to stick around and, and show me more but he didn't uh, perhaps he was smarter than i was in terms of getting out but um i i just thought uh much like kathy wood probably that uh once the numbers look good, uh, Magellan just attracted more and more and more and more and more money, and the cash flow itself made for the future performance because they was buying the same stocks. Same thing with Kathy Wood. So you got to be careful in terms of how um, smart these people are, whether it's a, a strategy uh, for uh, selling tickets or whether it's a strategy uh, for investing. I'm that's not very coming on that point.
1: Sorry, that's Alex. Cool. Not coming. Right, please. You mentioned about Magellan getting bigger and bigger and bigger. At one point, PIMCO total return, correct me, you would know much better than I was $293 billion, which is a small, well, not a decent sized country's GDP. Did you ever feel like the pressure with running that much money? And how could you invest that without it purely being beta, without buying the entire market?
2: Well, uh, remember the treasury market was was pretty large and uh, we, we dealt in financial futures and ultimately in, in, in global bonds and so on. And um, you know what we joked, we joked in the trading room um, that size wasn't a problem. We just added zero to the ticket. And um, in, in fact, we did as the years went on. Um, but it, this got back to my early blackjack days. I'd be sitting there with my $2 bet, two white chips, and there'd be the hitters on the uh, table with the black chips and the 200 and 300. And I'd look at them and I'd go, I go, "I'm playing the same game, I'm playing the same game. It doesn't matter what the color the chips are. And so I took that uh, with me and I think the company uh, did as well. And we adapted the size uh, because the markets themselves um you know expanded along with us and uh it it never really was much of a problem although clients for years and years and years um uh would wonder whether we could keep doing it
0: I wanted to to come in on something it was a sort of I guess related to the previous question we were talking about you know you mentioned kind of managers where the, where the sort of it becomes a little bit self-fulfilling and the, and the size becomes the, the, what what's interesting and, and that's what they're more interested in than in performance and things and we touched on good qualities in managers and investors that you respect I'm not going to ask you to uh, list the name of list, list investors you don't respect but, I, but I'm interested more and you obviously hired loads of managers over, over your career and have worked with lots of other professional investors are there qualities that you, you kind of view as a bit of a red flag you know we speak to a lot of fund selectors and they sort of say oh well we worry if there's sort of too much hubris or something like that but but then i look at a lot of managers and i think it doesn't seem to be holding them back uh are there are there qualities that you worried about when you saw people behaving a certain way or 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 trading a certain way and then you thought hang on a sec Hmm,
2: uh, that's a good one one i haven't um necessarily thought about i i always thought um when I was hiring people, I always asked them uh, if they had a choice, uh, would they prefer to be rich or famous? Um, and, uh, you know, they they would go back and forth. Um, they didn't want to say rich and they didn't want to say famous, but um, I- What was the I, right
0: answer? What were you looking for?
2: There wasn't a right answer, um, but that, I just wanted an answer. And, and uh, that was the problem when they didn't answer. Uh, there was uncertainty and a lack of uh, either self-awareness or a lack of uh, honesty in, in front of another person. So it that, that was a key question for me uh, to them. And you know how did that play out through the years in terms of the company? Um, well, you know, ultimately it did. Uh, in terms of um, my leaving and and my firing, uh, in my view, they uh, they cared more about money uh, than they cared about um, you know the company, the client uh, being famous like uh, I cared about. And and when money enters the the equation, um, there's a significant problem. Either people leave early or um, they drive. Uh, too hard and and they fail to see what's important in terms of the client and not necessarily uh, the bottom line of the company.
0: Interesting. Um, I'm conscious of time. Can I ask you a very left-field question? You can choose not to answer it uh, if you don't want. I heard heard a story once um, ages ago when we first came to States that once Donald Trump came to PIMCO's offices trying to sell uh some bonds for i think it was like may, maybe atlantic city but it might have been the stake the pack the post the mail order stake businesses uh and you you refused to he, he's had to stay in the lobby and then you refused to see him is, is there any truth in that story
2: It's very true um oh. and it's not not because i was too busy but i i knew um from the standpoint of investing uh and, and later on, otherwise, um, he was a dangerous man uh, because there were frequent bankruptcies and, you know, uh, lots of uh, braggadocio. And, uh, you know, I just didn't want to get taken in by his uh, his personality. So I said. Uh, you know to the high yield people you do it. And um I did meet him later on by the way at a Duke basketball game, Duke Carolina in the in the I guess in the, the pit during halftime. And uh he and uh, Melania were were very nice people. Um maybe that was part of the the deal, so to speak. But uh you know when I met him personally he was he was uh, a nice man but I didn't want to meet him from the standpoint of the investment side. Fair on,
0: enough, on the Sorry.
1: On the investment side, Bill, if we could just if we could bring it up to today, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of going on. There's a lot of moving parts. But what are people getting wrong more broadly, more than just beyond what mistakes you're making or have made? What mistakes are other people making that you're looking at from the outside and and perhaps pulling your hair out or screaming, you're getting this wrong?
2: Well, I think they've gotten so used to uh, and it's been a number of years. uh, We don't have to calculate when it all began, I guess it began with Bernanke and uh, quantitative easing and the possibility of negative interest rates, which no one assumed was possible. But everyone uh, has now assumed uh, that even these rates with a 10-year treasury at uh, 240, 45, that that uh, is getting close to where it should be. Um, That of course is dependent upon uh, where inflation will be. And uh, no one really knows that. And that's why the Fed is stepping things up. But investors, I think on the stock side, certainly, because I listened to CNBC uh, most of the morning, they, they simply believe that, um, and it's true for the past 10 or 15 years that stocks always go up, um, that uh, interest rates, yeah, they could go up, but uh, 3%, why why would that uh, be a problem? Because stocks have returned 10% uh, total return for the last umpty ump years and and so i i think there's a complacency that investors have fallen into uh, because that's been the history uh, for many many years now but uh i i don't think a lot of these uh, younger investors you know have experienced a, a bull market uh, perhaps in 2008 and nine perhaps they did uh, but they can be wicked and they can be based on a number of things as we're beginning to see uh, geopolitically and uh, from central banks and otherwise. But um, uh, I, I think there's that normality that, that, that may not continue.
1: Would you give them any tips to navigate that?
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, how are, you, how are you positioned then with your experience for, 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 for this market?
2: Well, um, you know, at Pimco, one of the secrets to Pimco I, it was not hidden, uh, but it was well advanced. It uh, was selling volatility at, a, at the proper price, and you could sell volatility through owning financial futures and the arbitrage that was available there. And you could sell volatility on the curve, as the you know the fifth uh, euro dollar contract rolled down to the fourth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mortgages were a great example of mortgages versus treasuries of selling volatility at the right price and so um that's what i'm doing now uh, there's incredible opportunities and and uh, in, incredible pitfalls i guess in terms of selling volatility uh you know for instance gamestop and uh amc my two favorites uh you know they're trading at the uh, Three month falls and two week falls at uh, 125, 130, 140. There have been times when they sold at 200, and um, if you can if you can spread out the the strikes, uh, you know, which is a strangle, not a straddle. If you can sell out the strikes like on GameStop, I've got uh, I sold calls at 200 and sold uh, puts at uh, 50. you know could that happen of course um you know could the lottery ticket come true it, of course it could um but uh, at those types of volatility uh, volatilities it's 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 difficult to lose it's not impossible but so that's what i'm uh, doing not just with those two stocks but with other stocks and i'm i'm also uh buying arbitrage buyout types of uh situations uh, you know where the where the buyer, uh, you know, it was Microsoft and uh, Oracle and uh, you know, big money buyers, uh, and what do they yield? Um, you know, four or five percent annualized over a six-month period of time. But in this type of environment, um, they're a good substitute for cash.
0: So look, there he was, Chris. That was uh, that was Bill Gross, and as we said at the intro, you know. A lot there. Very candid, which is obviously not something you always get with asset managers. Um, you probably do with him, to be fair. Uh, but yeah, I, I think a certain amount to unpack. What what perhaps was, were a couple of highlights for you?
1: Well, one of the highlights was, I mean, he was on very good form. I don't know if you just thought it was slightly surreal, these two British guys in sweaters asking slightly left field questions, just sort of piqued his interest. But I mean, there was a lot in terms of he, he obviously can flitter between a huge career I mean, he made the reference that he could pick on a number of things that have been the problem, but also he's had a lot of success. So it's always good to talk to somebody who's got that range and is so open about it. I mean, he doesn't answer to anybody now, and I think that comes across. He's very open with the fact that he's owning his mistakes to an extent and he's aware of how crazy, or crazy is probably the wrong word, but how much him weighing himself against PIMCO post-PIMCO weighed on him so much.
0: Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting point. I think he sort of, you know, maybe he's touched on it before, but you know, just very openly saying, like, you know, he wished he hadn't, you know, tried to launch another fund and and very open about the motivation for doing that. I I'm going to misquote him now. Uh, listener, you've just listened to this, so you should know better than me. But along the lines of, you know, I wanted to put my numbers up against their numbers and show them that they had effed up. I think was was, was the quote, and it just just like you think that was the reason, but just to sort of come out and say it like that, it was obviously quite interesting yeah. to hear.
1: I think one thing that was really interesting was how open he was about how much he used the press to sort of build his momentum and and how, when we asked him, I mean, that was that question you asked him of what makes a Bond King now? And he said, well, having a profile that says exactly that in Forbes helps. He's aware of how it works, and I mean, we're part of that process, but he is very much on board with it.
0: Yeah, it was interesting, and, and also I thought that he acknowledged uh, – that obviously having the press on the way up is great, but it does kind of you know fame tips to infamy, and and obviously he you know he sort of said emotionally or intellectually rather he knew that that would be the case that you know you you can't have it all your own way, but but, but when everything was good it was just hard to see beyond the fact that everything was good, and then obviously things turned and and quite dramatically, and but it, it was also interesting to hear him sort of say that he does care about that stuff because I always think you know he must be kind of impervious to this, but you know he does care about. Um, how he is covered and also how sort of I suppose people who only know him you know the gross of the last five, ten years know a very different character to to, to the one that people knew of sort of for the thirty years previous and um, again, it's not sort of massively surprising but, but but it's interesting to hear someone be so open about that. I think the key question for you, Alex is would you rather be rich or famous or both? Oh, I' just take one to be honest right now I just you know. Beggars can't be choosers, Chris. Um, (laughs) I I don't know what the right answer is. Probably rich, I think. It's the way you answer it. Yeah, it's the way you answer it. There you go. So I've I've just come across as desperate. Uh, (laughs) I think we're all there. That and for many other reasons, I have failed my job interview uh, with Bill Gross in the 90s at PIMCO. Uh, That and the fact I was seven uh, probably (laughs) had two reasons. So that was our interview with Bill Gross. And it's uh, goodbye from me, Alex Steger.
1: And it's goodbye from me, Chris Slowly.